seated. Our children uh, may be dismissed with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. And those of you that remain with us, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you've been in this church for any length of time or have known me at all, you know that I hate doing introductory sermons because I always want to say all the things. And I'm, I can't promise that I'm not going to do that this morning because Paul, Paul has this, this habit of taking a standard greeting that people used all the time in letters all during this day and, and tweaking it. And he didn't just write, Dear Bob. How are you doing today? What's going on? Nothing much here. Check yes or no. And like he didn't, like he would tweak it and would say, my beloved Bob, or he just would change the greeting. And he didn't do this by accident. He did this very much on purpose to call attention to the words he's using. That you might not just rush through it and get to the, all the rest of the stuff in the letter. He almost always is setting up in his introduction what he's talking about later in the book. And he does that here in the introduction. And so it's going to be very hard for me not to say all the rest of the things that he says in the book. I was actually tempted to just read the book of Philippians to you this morning and call it a day. But we will instead take a closer look at these two verses and see what it is that we can learn about what Paul would have us and the church in Philippi know about our Lord Jesus. This is God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, be at work. that this might be your spirit taking your word and applying it to our hearts that we might be changed, that we might be encouraged in Christ, that we might be conformed to Christ, that we might be strengthened in Christ, that we might go forth from this place to follow Christ. It was our glory, joy, and crown. We ask that you would do this, not because of anything we have in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So what has happened to joy in our world? Is it just me, or have you noticed that our world doesn't seem to be particularly joyful anymore. And then there are little pockets of gladness and happiness that are here for a moment and go away, but, but we seem to lack anything that actually brings lasting, transcendent joy. What happened to it? Where'd it go? 
It's so bad that if you just Google, how do I get joy, you will be confronted with article after article from psychology today, psychiatric today, the journal of, of psychological counseling, whatever. You will become across technical article after scholarly article from all the, the counselors and the psychologists that the world can muster, giving you ways to, to figure out how to find joy. In fact, one in psychology today was 50 ways to add joy to your day. And it's the most depressing thing I've ever read. It said things like smile. I'm like, well, if I, I I wouldn't need help smiling if I already had joy. Now I just feel worse because I'm not smiling enough. Maybe my resting face just is unpleasant. I don't know. And it said things like, indulge yourself with a new gift. Be good to yourself with an extra bit of dessert. Like, like, as you read through the list, it really is just one variation of another, 50 different ways of treat yourself. If you want to buy that Batman costume, buy the Batman costume. You'll find joy in it. If you want to buy the extra pair of shoes, buy the extra pair of shoes. If you want to buy the sequin robe, buy the sequin robe. Treat yourself and you'll find joy. But does it work? I've I've bought plenty of things. You go into my office and you see all the little collectibles I've got in there, and they, you know, I'm like happy I look at them. And uh, but it's not joy that lasts, that helps me when the world is falling apart, when people that I know and love are dying or injured. Or suffering? Where's the joy? What happened to it? Or even those of you who are like, look, the, the mature and right answer to that question is, I find joy in my family. Or in nature. Or in making a difference at my job. Or being involved at church, serving people. And, and those, are, those are better answers maybe than buying an extra pair of shoes or whatever. But yet those are the very things that very often are the source of our sadness and frustration. Where the brokenness hits us hardest is in our family or when the cells in our body rebel against nature and decide to inflict us with cancer, or when we're stuck in a dead-end job where we don't feel like anything we do makes any difference at all, or a conflict and stress arise in even the fellowship of the saints. Where's the joy? If there's a lesson to be learned from all of that, it's that when we look to things that are in and of themselves fragile, when we look to things that are fragile to bring us joy, the only joy they can offer is fragile. It can be broken or stolen away or hidden from your eyes in a blink of an eye in a moment. But the book of Philippians presents us with something very different, a completely, fundamentally different understanding of what joy is, how to find it, how to have it. 
And it's a sort of joy that isn't tied in transient things. Trinkets and toys, shoes that you can lose, socks that get lost in the dryer, sicknesses that can afflict your body. Like It's not a joy that is centered in things that are transient and fragile. It is a joy that is transcendent itself. It's a joy that isn't centered in circumstance because we read that Paul is writing this letter from prison. And this isn't like the sort of prison we're thinking about where, you know, he gets an hour to watch TV or he can work out on the elliptical when it's his turn. I mean, this is a dirty, dank, disgusting, gross Roman prison where If the jailer has time to worry about him, he'll get food or visitors or whatever. And yet Paul, in prison, can write earnestly and honestly, I am full of joy. I am rejoicing right now. Why? How? Where'd he get it? Not in that jail. Not from the food. There are people who heard about Paul being in jail who think now's our chance to afflict his status and embarrass him completely, to completely undermine his ministry and make his life even more miserable. And so they start preaching. If if preaching Jesus got Paul in prison, we'll preach Jesus too. And it'll just embarrass him. And Paul's not so wrapped up in his status as if that's the source of his joy. He's completely unfazed. He's like, all right, awesome. I don't care what I care about. I'm rejoicing right now, even in the midst of all these efforts to embarrass me, because Jesus is being proclaimed. (laughs) That's not usually how I look at it when people are coming at me. We read about Epaphroditus, this uh, resident of Philippi, who risked his life to deliver some supplies and some encouragement to Paul, who's in jail. Like, why worry about him? He's in jail. What can you do? You can't get him out. But Epaphroditus risked death because there was something better for him, something that could provide a joy that his own safety couldn't even compete with. We'll read later how Paul even rejects the whole badges of self-esteem and self-righteousness that a lot of people want to cling to. Well, at least I'm, you know, not like that guy, or at least I haven't struggled with this thing, or at least I got that promoted. He rejects all of the old, like he was the center of attention of the school that he was taught in. He was celebrated. He was zealous. People were like, yay, you go. And he rejected all of that for something that could give him a joy that could never be taken away. What was it? Where is your joy? You can't really appreciate what Philippians would tell you about joy if you can't honestly reflect on where your joy is really centered, not on the answers that you will give in a Sunday school class, but where it really is. Have you thought about it? Because what Philippians is going to say is that all the things that you tend to find joy in are as nothing. Because true joy comes 
It flows from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. There's no substitute. There's nothing else that can even compare. True, lasting, transcendent joy flows from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And Paul confronts us with this reality even in these first two verses in this introduction. And so we're going to look at, at what that, that is to know Jesus as Lord and what some of the, the great value is and how joy can flow from that. Just five quick things by way of introduction that we'll come back to again and again in our study of this letter. What is this surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as Lord? First thing we see is that when you know Jesus Christ as Lord, it tells you something about who we are. Paul addresses this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus. We have a problem. I don't know if it's a Western problem, if it's an American problem, or if it's just a problem of the human condition, but but we want... We need, we are desperate for external confirmation that we are okay. This is why the 50 ways to add joy to your day just doesn't work. Because like, I could go out and buy a 10-inch model of the Enterprise and be like happy for 30 seconds. But it doesn't tell me anything about me except that I'm willing to blow a whole bunch of money on a spaceship that doesn't actually do anything. We want somebody else to, to, to come alongside us and say, no, this is, this is who you are. You're okay. And we get really uncomfortable with this idea. China has the, the, the social credit system that we in the Western world are decrying, where your status in the culture sort of hinges on what everybody else thinks about you and how they vote, and your access to places hinges on your credit rating, your social credit rating, and we're like, that's so terrible. And yet we do, we, we do the same thing, and, and there's no government forcing us to do it. How many likes did I get? Like, we can't just go on vacation and enjoy it. We have to post it to inst- and get approval from other people. That looks like it's so much fun. We have to, we have to act like, like, am I okay? Like, this, is how, this, this was the problem I have, and, and this is what I did. Is that, does that mean I'm a, a bad person? Like we, we, we still seek voluntarily this external verdict to find out whether or not we're okay. All the while ignoring the verdict of the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who calls us his folk, his people, his saints. You will notice something interesting if you start at the beginning of the New Testament and read all the way to the end. The New Testament never dodges the question, are, are Christians sinful people? Yes, they are. They, make all, they do all kinds of sinful things and they are weak and frail people. But never, ever in the New Testament are Christians addressed as sinners. Paul never sends a letter to the sinners in the church in Philippi. Always he addresses them as saints 
a word, an old word, that isn't reserved for just the holy people that get, get statues made out of them. It is given to every believer in Christ. It means holy one. And to be a holy one is to be one who has been set apart by someone for some special purpose. And to be saints in Christ Jesus is to be set apart by God himself, for God himself, his glory and his purposes and his joy. And so Paul looks out and he says, I don't care about all these people trying to embarrass me because God himself calls me his own. What would it look like for you to stop for just a minute the frantic scurrying around looking for something to grab onto to give you some assurance, to give you some peace, to give you some internal satisfaction? The, the, the things that you busy yourselves with, the trips, the, the work, the, the projects, the hobbies, what would it look like for you to just stop for a minute consider who you are in Christ. God's verdict on your identity. This was maybe the hardest lesson of my sabbatical where a weekend I'm like, uh, I, like my job was taken away from me and not in a way where I could blame somebody. Well, they just fired me because they don't understand how talented I am. No, like, it was taken away from me and, and, and said, you, you need to rest and, and, and go do something else for a while. And you can come back later and it'll be fine. And there was a moment, a very palpable, tangible, real, heavy moment where I'm like, I, if, I'm not, if I'm not more than my job, who am I? What am I? I had to stop and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn what it means to be his holy one. Maybe you need a Sabbath rest. That's what the Lord's Day is. Time for you to stop. Be still and know he is God. And you're his. Joy will come from that. It's not just about who we are. It's also about how we lead. This is the only letter that Paul calls out in the introduction, the overseers and deacons or the elders and deacons. And it's unusual. And and it makes sense later in the letter because there are some uh, conflicts in the church. There's some things that they're having to deal with, and, and the, the leaders will bear special responsibility in that. But, but the, when we think about leadership, we, we always think about those who have it. We wouldn't describe it this way, but this is how it works out. Lording it over those who don't. When they get in a position of authority and power, like, we just need to do what they say. They're the boss. Let's go. And, 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 and 
And Paul, through this whole letter, is like, it's the, you've got it backwards. Exactly backwards. If you want destruction and abuse and just devastation to reign, then yeah, lord it over everybody when you get to a position of success or power or authority. But if you are in Christ, if you know Christ as Lord, you will discover that he who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and has all power and all authority and a name that's above every name, for the joy set before him, he despised endured the cross, despising its shame. He served, he sacrificed, he gave. And we give lip service. Well, yeah, the joy's in the giving, not the getting. But next time your birthday rolls around, see how, see how much you talk about how much you gave away. Like, for my birthday? Like, I took everything I had and I gave it to people that really needed it. You, Let's see how that goes. And yet, even though we give lip service to it, it's true. The joy is in the giving. And so Paul calls the leaders out here, not in a way to like, look at them, look at them, but to prepare them. Hey, all the saints in Christ Jesus together with the overseers and deacons. You're, you're a part of that group too. You're no better. And Christ has called you to a humble, sacrificial, grace-filled service that follows in His steps and not in the patterns of the world. And look, this is something for all of us to learn from because no matter who you are, you are in some position of some authority and responsibility for something or somebody. It's not just for elders or deacons or ministry leaders. It's for parents, for siblings, for students, for teachers, for neighbors, coworkers. There is, there is somebody in your life that, that you have an opportunity to give to, looking for nothing in return. Now, and we always look for like the people it's easy to do that with, but what, what would it look like for you to find the person that is hardest for you to love, hardest for you to serve, maybe in your family, at your job, here, here at church? Oh, it happens here too. And find one way you could serve them this next month sacrificially, without looking for anything in return. No acclamation, no approval, no pat on the back. What would it look like for you to give? Because Christ gave, and you're His. It's not just about how we lead. When you know Christ Jesus as Lord, it affects what you do. Paul introduces him, and he and Timothy here as servants of Christ Jesus, bondservants. Some of your translations may say slaves. That's a scary word because of our own culture's history, but Paul's not rooting it in American chattel slavery. He's reading it in this idea, everybody serves something. 
whether you like it or not, you serve something. But to be a servant of Christ is to know him, to know that you are called by his name, set apart as holy for him, called to humility and sacrificial service, to know his love for you that knows no bounds isn't to serve Jesus out of slavish fear, but out of, the, out of love. There is a joyful service there. I mean, if you've ever had that high school or middle school crush that that turned into something more, you you know how this goes. Like, there is that time when you're like, oh no, what, you're just, you're full of fear. What if I, what if, what if they heard me say this, or did they see that, or or, or, that's not what I meant, or, and you're just, oh my goodness, we've all done it, but you're just angst wrapped up in hormones and emotions and fear. But there comes a time, maybe, where you move out of that and you realize this person that I have my affections on, they actually care about me for me. And it's so freeing, isn't it? Sometimes I get my words twisted around, which is not a healthy habit in a pastor, but when Tracy and I first met, I, you know, I would say, I would try to compliment her and end up comparing her to her dog, because her dog was a beautiful dog, and, and, like, and like, no, that's not what I meant. And like, there was a time where I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go crawl in a hole and die, because I'm, I'm dead. She just laughs. Good, like, there was freedom there because she's like, I know what you meant. And I love you anyway. <laughs> the love of Christ frees us to serve him with joy. And if, if your service to the Lord is full of misery... It tells you something about you. If obeying the call of Christ, even when it's hard, I'm not saying it's easy. Paul's in prison. I'm not saying following Jesus is easy and it's a bed of roses all that. No, it's hard. But if it's miserable, if there is no joy for you in following after the Lord of glory who loves you so much that he gave his very life for you, that says something about you and your heart and where your affections lie. The idols that you've lifted up, that you cling to, When you know Jesus, there is a comfort there that frees you to serve him with joy. How do you get to know him that way? The whole book of Philippians, we're going to talk about that. But I'll give you one thing. Very practical. You can do it today even. Come tonight to the evening gathering where we'll hear more about the discipleship program. You want to know more about Jesus? Read his word and find out more about Jesus. Don't feel like you have to do it on your own. Get matched up with somebody else. 
and sit down and open up the scriptures and read about Jesus and pray to Jesus and encourage one another in Jesus and see if you might not gain eyes to see the joy that can be yours in following Jesus. Is that a cheap plug for the one-on-one discipleship program? I mean, it's a plug, but I don't know that it's cheap. It's not rocket science. You want to know more about the love of Christ. It's, it doesn't come by osmosis. And if you get struck by lightning when you're out there, but that might not be a good sign. <laughs> Read his word. Pour into the pursuit of knowing Christ as Lord because it's worth it. It's not just about what we do. It's about where we live. I love how Paul does this so subtly. You could read right past it and not even think about it. But, but we, we act sometimes like the quest for joy, even the quest for joy in Christ is a solo affair. But Paul comes again and again and again and talks about we, us, God, our Father. It doesn't matter that he's an apostle. God's still his heavenly Father. Same as you. Same as anyone in Christ. And again and again, he comes back to that theme that what matters Not the things that we think bring us joy, but the people that God brings into our lives. That we we could be more and more a loving community in Christ. What would it look like if we really, truly devoted ourselves together to helping one another know that joy in Jesus. Look, this isn't magic. This is a way of life. If you've ever sat back and wondered, why does the church do some of the things the church does? I mean, like if we were going to do like a marketing evaluation, there are, there are a bunch of things you could do different. You know, grow, say things different. But why do we... How do we get together and pray at 9.15 every morning? What does that accomplish? Why do we gather here on the live stream or in person and, and listen to scripture and a sermon and pray and sing? Why do we come back to an evening gathering to hear more about this God that we serve? Why do we gather for fellowship? Why, why do we do the things that we do? Because the way that Christ is calling us into the the life, the joy, it's not about things. It is a way. It is connected to him and his people. And if you want to grow in that joy, you can't do it cut off from all the other people he's working in. Come to the prayer thing. Come to the evening gathering. Not because I guilted you in it. I'll take it, but it doesn't last. It won't stick. Don't come because I guilted you. Come because you are suddenly thirsty to know the joy of Christ. And you've realized you can't do it on your own.
the last thing, and I apologize if I've gone long. So the reason we can do any of these things, the reason we can uh, rest in who we are, we can lead sacrificially, we can serve Jesus no matter what it is he asks of us, we can do this together as a people. The reason we can do all of this is because of the blessing that Paul announces. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, there's nothing in this book that's sugar-coated. We're going to come across a whole lot of suffering. And in the middle of that suffering, Paul says, and there's joy. We're going to come across a whole lot of brokenness. And in the middle of that brokenness, Paul's going to be commanding, not suggesting, commanding, rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, just in case you missed it, I say, rejoice. And it's not a pull yourself up by your bootstrap, work really hard, grit your teeth really hard, squint, and and be joyful. That's not what he's saying. No, we can do any of this because of the grace and the peace that is ours in Christ. You think about it this way. There's a a Japanese art, I'm going to mispronounce it, kintsugi, taking broken pieces of pottery and putting them back together, reassembling them with gold lacquer or platinum or silver. And it looks a little bit, maybe, like that, which is kind of cool. Like, have you ever broken something so precious to you? Maybe it wasn't an 18th century Ming vase or whatever. I know I got my dates all wrong on that, but you know what I mean. Like, maybe, but, and you're like, ah, whatever, I'm just going to throw it away and buy a new one. But, but, but this art puts those things back together in a way that's different. It's not the same as it was, but in a way it's even more beautiful and more glorious. You see the time and the love and the painstaking, painstaking, tedious diligence that it took to reassemble this thing. And I can't help but look at this and think about Jesus in the upper room looking at Thomas and saying, put your finger, put your finger in the holes in my hands. Put your hand in my side. He was raised from the dead, but the the scars of his suffering remained, but they were no longer sources of shame or fear or dread or horror, but were sources of joy and encouragement and hope and assurance that our God reigns and he can redeem and restore anything. So sometimes we look out at this broken world that wants to steal our joy and we are wondering, what is God doing here? He's pouring out grace and peace and rebuilding broken hearts and putting shattered lives back together in Christ, preparing a people for his own possession that will be his forever and ever where joy will know no end. Sometimes we get so fixed on our sorrow, we lose the ability to see where God is working. Slowly, sometimes. Painstakingly. Putting that jar of clay back together and filling it with his glory. 
which tells you something. For all the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as Lord, when you think about these things and consider these things, you can't help but but be arrested by this thought. You, whoever you are, whatever you're wrestling with, wherever you live, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, you in Christ are of surpassing worth to God. And there's joy in that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Or that's it. That's our prayer. We plead with you that you would answer it above and beyond what we could ask or imagine. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.